Let's pray together. What a joy it is to sing to you, our great God, our maker, our sustainer, our father, our redeemer. Lord, as we gather together today, as we open your word together, we ask that your Holy Spirit would operate on our hearts in a way that only he can, that you would do what would be pleasing to you in conforming us to the image of your son by the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For a few brief moments, COVID-19 brought the world together. And ever since those fleeting moments evaporated, COVID-19 has torn the world apart. Our world is rife with division. Even though we all live on the same planet, And endure many of the same things. This morning as we gather together, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And just a short message this morning will lead into a time together to celebrate the Lord's death at the Lord's table at communion. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open to 1 Corinthians 11. Because I want the words here in this text to help us as believers in Christ... To rejoice in a unity that transcends our circumstances. You see, it's possible for believers to bring worldly divisions into the church. In fact, there's no better example of that than the church at Corinth. And yet, what is it that unifies us, brings us from all different walks of life together? It is a table with symbols, symbols of a crushed body and spilled blood. These are life-altering realities that will bring us together forever and ought to bring us together even now. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 18 says this, when you come together as a church, I think that has new significance for us, doesn't it? When you come together as a church, what a sweet privilege it is to be together. We come together around a table, some bread and some juice. In fact, this phrase, come together or meet together, occurs four times in this passage. And it does so in the context of a church that was rife with worldly division. There were differences among Christians at the church at Corinth. They experienced quarrels over their favorite teachers, selfishness over the use of spiritual gifts, lawsuits over temporal matters, and scandals over flaunted freedoms. Leading up to the Lord's table, Paul addresses all of these divisions at the church in Corinth. And we come to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 11. And Paul says this, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. What a tragedy that believers who, despite all of their natural or worldly or background or cultural differences have things in common of infinite proportion. Things that make them a family, things that make them like-minded, things that weld them together into eternity. Things that can never be severed, things that can never be broken. 
And these unbreakable bonds that produce unity are blood-bought by the Son of God. And they are irrevocable, despite how we might treat them from time to time. And so Paul's words here are an indictment to the church at Corinth to live according to what is actually true of them. And to forego the temptation to let personal interests divide them as believers. Look down at verse 20 of chapter 11. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. And do you see what's happening here? The church at Corinth would meet together and they would celebrate the very table we're going to celebrate today. And Paul says, you might be taking the Lord's table in name, but not in reality. It is apparent that Christians at Corinth were treating the Lord's table not as symbols, but as a place to indulge fleshly appetites, to take the wine and be intoxicated by it, to take the food as filling their stomachs. Paul goes on to tell them, look, have a meal at home. That's not what this is about. You come together and we break bread and we take the fruit of the vine as symbols of something far more important than filling your bellies. And probably at Corinth, the way the Lord's table was taken was a matter of cultural status and personal prestige. Those who had power and influence took first or those who just got there first took first and left none for the others. And we know this because the remedy that Paul gives to this very problem, all the way down in verse 33 and 34, is this. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, here's the command, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remedy is prefer one another. Wait for one another. Give room for the preferences of each other. Make sure that others' needs are met before your own. The problems at Corinth are not dissimilar from the temptations facing churches across America today. Will believers, when they come together around a crucified Savior, will believers prefer others? Will they die to self and live for the benefit of others to proclaim a visible unity that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood? Look what our coming together is supposed to be in verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is our gathering supposed to be, especially a gathering around the table, around these symbols we're about to partake in? They are symbols of these life-altering realities, visible, tangible signs, pointers to some things that radically bring us together and produce a unity the world cannot know. You see, every believer in partaking of the Lord's table Reproclaims Jesus' death. And look, Jesus' death is not the end of the story, right? Jesus' death produces things which bring about eternal life, fellowship with God. 
But the death of Christ is so critical to our proclamation of good news because without a bloody atonement, without shed blood, there can be no remission of sin. This brings us to these fundamental realities that we proclaim together every time we do this. We proclaim the Lord's death. The Lord of life died. In proclaiming this, we're proclaiming, first of all, that we are sinners in need of such a death. The profound reality that we're not what we should be. That in fact our sins have separated us from fellowship with God. Have actually made it impossible for us to be loved by God, known by God, to love him, to have fellowship with him. Nobody gets to heaven. Nobody gets access to God on the basis of his good deeds. The reality is every single one of us sins from our nature and our behaviors put us at odds, at enmity with our maker. Every peccadillo, every so-called white lie, every so-called good deed not done for the glory of God but for some sort of self-aggrandizement is an offense to God and is actually an offense of forensic nature. That is, it is judicially offensive to him and must be punished, must be paid for. And the problem of our sin really is the problem of God. God being holy and without sin and intolerant of sin. God's very existence creates a problem for us sinners who depend every moment upon him for our very sustenance. And who will face him one day at the end of life. And the problem of God can only be solved by God. And while God is intolerant of sin, he yet loves sinners and has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. And that way of reconciliation is only through the blood of his son. Look, if Jesus Christ, God the flesh, God the son, the perfect one, the holy one, came and died on a cross to pay for sin. Let no one ever suppose that there's some other path. As if you could do what God demanded that only the blood of Christ could fulfill. Look, if you could merit your way to heaven by being gooder than the next guy, there is no way God would crush his son at the cross, the son of his love, and pour out on that son infinite wrath due sinners. Now, the very fact that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners at the cross as a substitute is a demonstration that there is no other solution to sin. God's solution in the blood of his son is the only solution to sin and it is a complete solution to sin. Listen, friends, when you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God says he washes away that which is scarlet, bloody red. He takes away all of that guilt and makes it white as snow, white like white wool. When you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he removes our sin from us, judicially. 
declaring us to be perfectly righteous, treating us as if we had never sinned, and treating us as if we had always done what is right. God says that he takes our sin and moves it as far away from us as the east is from the west. Listen, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin problem has been solved. The God problem has been solved. And you belong to him. You're in his family. And you instantly gain family with everyone else who has cast their faith solely on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in him, of course, means to turn from sin and turn to God. It means to turn from an old life and embrace a new life. It means surrender. But oh, how sweet this surrender is. Notice what this means for the Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, this is how the Apostle Paul addresses the church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those who have been set apart. It was done once and it still is true. You are set apart in Christ Jesus and you are saints by calling. You're the set apart ones by God's ineffable calling. God drew you to himself and you are separated unto him. This is what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says to you, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, God's kindness and peace instead of enmity and wrath. Paul goes on in verse 4 and says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. In everything you were enriched in him, speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, you're not lacking in any gift. You're waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Listen to this, verse 8. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the blood of Christ accomplish for the Corinthian believers? Puts them in the category before God as blameless. This is a staggering reality. I mean, consider their history. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Not fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, the covetous, nor drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you were at Corinth, you were saying, I'm in trouble. (laughs) And any of us in this room find ourselves on that list. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So when it comes to the Lord's table, the encouragement for us is to rejoice in this blood, in this body given to us. Because it brings us together. Let no divisions interfere with God's purpose in this very thing. Lest we incur judgment. Look at verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself. And in so doing is to eat and drink. 
You see, the issue for the Corinthian believers is they weren't really taking the Lord's table. They were going through the procedures, but they were violating it and incurring judgment upon themselves for it. What were they doing wrong? Look at verse 29. The one eating and drinking eats and drinks judgment in himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And in this context, he's not talking about the body of Christ, meaning Jesus' physical body on the cross, nor the symbol of it, but the body of Christ, meaning the church, his gathered body, people. And notice he clarifies this down in verse 31. If we judged ourselves rightly... Do you see the parallel from verse 29? To judge the body arightly, meaning the church, and to judge ourselves arightly, verse 31 in parallel, means that we are to look at one another and interact with one another appropriately, not violating the unity that Jesus himself purchased. Many in our world today long for unity. And the force that brings together Christians from all cultures, all languages, all opinions, is the blood of our crucified Savior. Look, Christian, you have so much more in common with a Christian from North Africa in the third century that you've never met than the people that you're around every day that don't know Christ, that look like you, speak like you, eat the same food you eat, listen to the same music, have the same sports teams. You have so much more in common with believers in Papua New Guinea than you do with people who look and dress and act like you here in this world that don't know Christ. This unification that the world can't touch was infinitely costly, but it also yields infinite benefit to us. And we celebrate that here together. Sins forgiven, a new family. At this time, the men are going to prepare to serve us. It will take a few moments for them to gather the elements. I want to give a little bit of instruction in our new way of doing things. Uh, Hopefully, this will not be the new way forever, but it is the new way for now. Uh, Again, just remembering our coronavirus principles, we want to be careful not to breathe the same air and touch the same things. So while it is very painful to not pass out Bibles, (laughs) it's painful to not give handshakes and a lot of the things we're familiar with, we do want to exercise caution. Uh, We do want to do our part to inhibit the spread of a virus. And so as the men come, they're going to hand out single-serve communion packets. I don't even know what to call them. They look like this. And with masks on and gloves on, they're going to make their way around the room. We're not going to pass things down the aisle. If, you, if it is appropriate for you to receive and take communion this morning, when they come by, if you'll just hold your hands out, and they will drop the elements into your hands. And I kind of feel like a flight attendant here. You know, white lights lead to red lights, indicating your exits, if the oxygen, you know, all that stuff. Um, there are two flaps on the little communion packet. There's a thin, clear, plastic one. That comes off first. That reveals a little wafer. Um, We'll take that together. And then there's a second flap that 
reveals the juice. And we'll take that together. If you open up both flaps at the same time, you might make a mess. That's okay. We're all learning this together. But just so you know how these things work. Um, Let me tell you uh, how important it is that we think rightly about the Lord's table. And every week when we do this together, we, we give some time for silence. And that time of silence is intended for self-examination. You ought to ask your own heart some really critical questions. You see, the Lord's table is not for everybody. The Lord's table is only for believers. It's only for those who have been called by Jesus Christ through faith in his blood, have repented and surrendered to Jesus. If you're not a believer here this morning, we're glad that you're here. We want you to know and believe the gospel. But taking these signs and symbols are a proclamation of our Lord's death. You must belong to him to take these. Uh, There's no shame in not taking one of these if you're not a believer. We would just ask you to talk to somebody about how do I become a Christian? And you may experience eternal life even today in surrendering to Jesus Christ. And so the other thing that we must do in self-examining is just to take an opportunity to examine your heart, confess any known sin before the Lord, rejoice in His purchasing you by His blood and the forgiveness that that brings. Confess your sins, keep short accounts with God, and we'll rejoice together in the death of our Lord. Okay, the men are prepared. They're going to come forward at this time. And again, just hold your hands out if you're ready to receive. And we'll take a few moments, examine your hearts, confess your sins before the Lord, and rejoice in His purchased forgiveness. By the way, uh, just a reminder, these are not gluten-free. If you're accustomed to the gluten-free communion wafers, we haven't figured out that part yet. So um, bear with us. I'll close us in prayer in just a moment. Oh Lord, our God, we are sobered by these symbols, reminders that it is we who deserved to die, it was we who deserved the wrath, it was we who deserve infinite punishment, the hand of a God who is holy and just and righteous and good. And we're humbled by love, humbled by grace, that God would look upon our pitiable state and have mercy. And such costly mercy. We hold in our hands these symbols of your death, O Lord Jesus, in our place. We rejoice in the forgiveness purchased. Amen. All right, let's open. And I'll read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three and 24. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this together. And then in verse 25, In the same way he took the cup also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And won't that be a glorious day? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the sweet privilege it is to gather together. God, we long for the day when free of all sickness, free of all threats, we will be together with all your people from all times and all places, singing your praises, surrounding the throne of the Lamb slain. In anticipation of that day, God, help us to go forward proclaiming his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return, and all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.